Uh, many of you know, and I think many of you know, that I was raised in Ohio. And anyone who's ever lived or gotten a driver's license in Ohio knows that Ohio is famous. The Ohio State Police are famous uh, for going out at traffic accidents and videotaping the traffic accidents very graphically. Um, and when you get a ticket or when you get points and you lose your license and you have to take a class, they sit you in front of these videos and watch these horror flicks of these horror movies of what people have done because of uh, DUIs or texting while driving or, or any of the things that we do when we find ourselves distracted driving. Uh, and they're horrible. In fact, I've got, I had friends when I was growing up, I, I, I must admit I almost lost my license uh, before I turned 18, and that meant that I was getting close to nine points on my driver's license. And you may ask, how did I get those nine points? And I'll tell you, the reason I got those nine points is because I was a smart aleck. It wasn't so much that I was speeding while I was. It wasn't so much that I ran through red lights. It was. But when the policeman came up to the window, I would give him a smart aleck response. And he never gave me a warning as a result of it. He always gave me a ticket, and I'm pretty sure he jacked up the fine. So I got pretty close to losing my license. But I had friends who lost their licenses for various reasons, and they had to sit in front of those movies watching these accidents or these, the, the results of these accidents that people have done. There's much, uh, they are much more worse than a fine. Um, people, my friends have told me horror stories of watching these. Now the purpose of these films was what? They wanted to scare you straight. They wanted to keep you from, they wanted to help you think about the consequences, the choices you made when you texted while you drove or when you drank before you drove and got in your car and turned the, turned the ignition on, it was to warn us of the dangers of break, breaking the traffic laws because breaking traffic laws uh, can be dangerous at times. They can be dangerous to not only the driver, but they can be dangerous to people who are around us. And don't look at me as if I'm the only one who's broken a traffic law. I know you guys have too. I've been in some of your cars. Well, we have a warning passage in front of us this morning. And I think it's very interesting that this casting out of these evil spirits from this man, and Mark is unusual from the other Gospels. Mark gives us small little snippets. But the, the text and the story we have for us this morning has, takes up a lot of ink in the, in the Gospel of Mark. He gives a lot of time in unpacking this little story for us. And so I think it's wise for us to unpack the story the story is really told in, to us in, in graphic details. Again, it's one of the longer narratives. Um, but at its center, just like last week's message about the wind and the waves, at its center is really a demonstration of Jesus' power and authority, of Jesus' goodness, of Jesus taking um, uh, this evil and, and changing it uh, for his good and for his glory. And the warning to us as we consider the tormenting picture of this man is the graphic picture of, of how evil, really evil is. Um, there's a, a doctrinal perspective called total depravity. And it, it, it says that, that every aspect of our being is totally depraved. The effects of the sin, uh, effect, if the effects of sin affected every area of our life, our mind, our bodies, uh, our relationships, everything is affected. You'd think that the word total depravity means that, that we're as bad as we can be. 
But I think the reality is, because of the restraining power of the Holy Spirit in the world and in our lives, people are not as bad as they can be. Even though you look at the news and you recognize some horrible things happen, don't they? Human beings can do some horrible things to other human beings. And the world is full of it. But it's not as bad as we could be if the Holy Spirit were to pull his hand off this world. We can see uh, that when evil takes over, what evil causes and what evil does, because for all of us, there are times when evil just doesn't seem so evil. Isn't that true? There are times when gossip just doesn't seem evil to us. There are times that even in the midst of a prayer meeting, we can gossip by sharing something like, well, my friend is really struggling with this issue. That, that can be a form of gossip if your friend doesn't want that information communicated. We, we trivialize gossip. There are times that when lust doesn't seem so evil to us. You know, we, we think maybe uh, looking at internet porn is bad, maybe committing adultery is bad, but then we think of Jesus' words when you look at a woman with lust in your heart, oh, that's not as bad. We have a pecking order of sin and a pecking order of evil. There are times when greed doesn't seem so evil to us or when lying doesn't seem so evil to us. We all know that we live in a culture where bad just isn't bad anymore. In fact, we live in a culture that says that, that wrong is, is made right and right is made wrong. Really, the highest virtue in our culture today isn't right and wrong. I think the highest virtue in our culture today is tolerance. Tolerance is the highest virtue. You can't say to a person that you're wrong. We can't say to the person sitting next to us, the way you're choosing to live is not the way God calls us to live as Christians. We, we end up, sometimes we look at the other person who's trying to call us to a relationship with Jesus and say, what right do you have to tell me how I should live? So tolerance and, and acceptance seem to be the highest virtue today. We must never call anything wrong. We must always tolerate whatever the person next to us chooses to do. There is a difference between loving that person and not condoning what they do, though. And I think we need to be champions of love. So God, knowing our hearts and knowing the fallenness of the world in which we live, I think he blesses us with a narrative like this so that we'd be warned and would remember as we watch the video and take notice. So if you have your Bibles open, uh, Mark chapter 5. Last week, uh, Pastor Mike preached on the crossing of the the Sea of Galilee. Uh, We remember Jesus had gotten in a boat and he asked his disciples to take him across the Sea of Galilee for some rest. Uh, I I was looking the other day at how big the Sea of Galilee is. It's a a nice size little little sea. It's about seven and a half miles wide and about 12 miles uh, long from top to bottom. I don't know where um, they, they put in on the Sea of Galilee. So potentially they could have They could have been anywhere in that water. I don't know how long it took. Maybe Jesus dusted up the storm to move them across that water faster. But we all know Jesus dusted up that storm, I think, to show his disciples who he was and to test their faith. He does the same thing for you and I today. He tests our faith. He puts us in circumstances and situations. I I think the clinches would say their faith has been tested being in India for these past two years. And God has proven himself, as Chris indicated. We know Jesus was tired and he fell asleep in the middle of a violent storm. 
But when he gets to the other side, there's no rest for the weary. He's confronted with a circumstance and a situation that would really, I think, cause all of us to kind of run away and say, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for this. So let's look at this text this morning, starting with verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. There are a few things that I, uh, right off the bat, right in the beginning of this passage, and then one later on, that I think jump off the page to me when you see what happens when evil takes over the heart and soul of a human being. And here's the first one, and you can follow along in your maps, your message ap- application points that you have in your brochures. This man was unable to be restrained. Uh, by the chains and shackles, there's, there's indication that chains and shackles were, were, the chains were around his body, the hand, the shackles may have been around his feet as you put shackles on people. So he was chained multiple ways to, to be subdued. But these chains couldn't bind him. Uh, sadly, in those days and even today in third world countries, I was doing some research on this in Ghana, and some other third world countries, when there's someone or an individual, a child or an adult, that they don't have a a way to deal with, Uh, maybe a physical ailment, a mental illness, they chain them to trees because they don't know how to take care of them. And so this guy was chained. They didn't know how to deal with him. So they let him go out in the tombs and tried to shackle him. We'll find out later why they tried to shackle him too. They tried to shackle him for his own good. When someone was crazy and out of control, he was driven out of town. And this is where this man lived. And yet he had such supernatural power that they couldn't keep him him tied down. So the first point on on your map is it is absolutely impossible to restrain, subdue, and conquer evil by external means. We can't do it. Evil cannot be conquered that way. We don't solve the problem of evil by some kind of external restraint. You can't ask the law to do what only grace can accomplish. And there's a tendency to think somehow, some way, we can hold evil. We can play with it. We can dabble with it, and it won't affect us. We can hold it down apart from the intervention of God, and we just can't. And you see that very powerfully in this man. You know, if you're a parent here, and there's a lot of parents in this room, I think there's a lesson here in parenting for us. Um, the, the lesson in parenting for me is that external restraint and control of the behavior of a child is not about externals. We've got to get a hold of their hearts, don't we? I know Elizabeth battles with that sometimes um, at school. Every school has rules, and there's nothing wrong with rules, right? But you can't force, uh, you can't force a child to comply externally. It's got to be something of the heart. 
You can beat them. You can chain them as much as you want. But you can't make them comply externally. It's got to be a work of heart. And it's really ultimately something that only God can do in the lives of our children. The problem is not the child's behavior. And we, that's what we see, isn't it, though? And so we think the problem is the behavior. It's not the behavior. The problem is the evil in the heart of that child that shapes his behavior. Uh, when, I, when I was uh, a pastoring in a Presbyterian church, in a Presbyterian church, they didn't dedicate children. They baptized infants. And one of the things that I would always say holding that child is, as you bring this child to be baptized, and I, I may have an opportunity to say it on the 13th when we baptize Amber's youngest, the Lauks' youngest, do you recognize this child as a cute little bundle of total depravity? Yes, this child is evil through and through. And this child only wants to do what this child wants to do for him or herself only. They're not concerned about you. They're concerned about them. And I'm sure Joan has a ton of stories about that up at the daycare. <laughs> you can testify to that, can't you? You have a bunch of cute little bundles of total depravity running around. But you have to deal with the heart. That's where the behavior, that's where lasting change in behavior takes place. It takes place in their heart. I think there are thousands of Christian young people who go off to college every year and seem to forsake the faith, don't they? You see stories about it all the time. Here's my response to that. It wasn't their faith in the first place. It was yours. Every child is going through the process as a high school student and a college student of making what you have ta taught them as parents their own. And so it looks like turmoil a lot of time. A lot of time. And it's scary because you are out of control of it. They're not, under your, they're not under your control anymore. They're out on their own. But they're really wrestling to make your faith theirs. And it's painful for you, and it's painful for them. Conquering evil starts by recognizing that we are utterly helpless to restrain it ourselves. And this man and those trying to deal with him were helpless. The next thing I want you to see that it says about this man is that night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Evil in its very nature is destructive, and that's the second point. Evil is always destructive. Is there anything, is there such thing as constructive evil? Only from God's perspective, because God can take evil and turn it into good, can't he? God can make all things to work together for good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. But from my standpoint, I can't make anything good out of evil. I can't change anything from evil to good in and of myself. There's no such thing as evil that is going in the right direction. There's no such thing as evil that has wisdom. There's no such thing as evil that is building something that you're going to look back later and say, this is a good thing. And if you're giving yourself to evil, whether you realize it or not, you are on a sure pathway to self-destruction. That's what evil does. And the problem is, it's not always apparent to us, is it? I think that's why we're given this powerful picture of this man, so we would see when evil takes over, when it what it actually produces. You know, I, I've talked to some young men, uh, young women, sorry, who have been struggling with eating disorders. I've talked with people who have struggled with alcoholism. I've struggled with all sorts of disorders and addictions. And they would have never said when they started out down that path 
that it was, they were going to lose control of it. You know, the, the, young, the young woman struggling with the issues of image. Well, starve myself or, 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 or gorge myself. I'm in control of that. No, you're not. You, that, that food becomes your God. Alcoholism. You may be trying to, to deaden and numb some issues going on in your life, but pretty soon, eventually, it's going to take control of you. An, an addict doesn't wake up in the morning and say, I think today I'm going to become an addict. It's a slow erosion. And then pretty soon, it's out of control. And that is evil. That's what evil does. You can't trifle with it. When you, have, when you fudged on your taxes and you've acquired a little extra money to put in your pocket, the extra money in your pocket doesn't seem so evil because you've spent it in 12 ways. And the fun of spending the money makes you miss the fact how evil it is. And again, it's not the money, it's the love of money. And you can put anything you want in there. Maybe you struggle with pornography and, and clicking on that computer and you see that, that young woman and you start thinking about ways you're not satisfied. It's, it's so easy and it takes control. And sin is pleasurable for a moment, isn't it? Sin is fun, but it has dire consequences. It really does. And that's the picture we see of this, this man. Then the passage moves towards this man's approach of God under the influence of the evil spirits. Verse 6, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me, for he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. I, I've read a couple commentaries and some, some very old commentaries in this passage, and there was one commentator that suggested that this, that e, that this evil spirit was worshiping Jesus. Acknowledging Jesus is not worship. Acknowledging who he is isn't worship. It says that even the demons know who Jesus is, yet they tremble, doesn't it? This little vignette doesn't remotely look like worship. It's not worship in any shape or form. And here's the third observation. Evil is always against God. It's always against God. It's always at war with God. In fact, evil has as its goal to conquer God. Flesh and spirit are at war within us. And there's a reason flesh and spirit are at a war with us. And Paul tells us in Galatians, so that we don't do what we want. And I've often wondered, why, why God? You certainly have the ability to take away my struggle with sin and evil, don't you? And, and I would say, yes, the answer is yes, he does. At a moment's notice, he can take it away. He could have taken it away to the day I turned my life over to him. But the very next day, who would I have been, who would I have been tempted to trust in? Me myself. I don't like to struggle with evil and sin. I don't like to struggle with thoughts and actions that don't please God, but I know that one thing it does for me is it drives me to my knees. It drives me to dependence upon who Jesus is because he knows the beginning from the end, doesn't he? He knows the big picture. He is the God that stills the storm. He is the God that has authority over evil spirits. We can go to him when we have these issues. But evil is always against God. And so the man comes and he falls, he falls down before Christ and he says, what have you to do with me? Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. 
Now, what would you think if I walked up to you and said, Nick, what do you have to do with me? Would you think that was a friendly gesture? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. Would you feel loved? <laughs> Maybe I should have picked someone that doesn't know me. No, you, you wouldn't feel respected. Uh, you would say, you probably wouldn't say, I think Michael likes me. You, you would question whether or not I liked you. This is an attack. And I think that's what the evil spirit, this legion, these multiple demons, by the way, I'm not going to go down this road. I mean, other commentators have suggested that the reason he called himself legion is because there were 2,000 demons in this, in this guy. I, I think that's speculation. The scripture doesn't reveal that to us. It says that there were many, but it doesn't suggest there were 2,000. So I'm not going to go down that road. You can, if you want to read about that, you can. This is rebellion. This is not worship, despite the fact that the demon acknowledges who Jesus is. And, and I think that there's a danger in that for us, too. It's easy for us to walk into a building like this and think that worship is about flipping a switch, isn't it? Worship isn't about flipping a switch. Worship is a way of life. Worship is giving all of our heart and life to God. This is just an expression with the gathered body of, of who God is and that, we, uh, that we, we desire to give Him all of who we are. You're not going to stop worshiping when you leave this building, I hope. You're not going to stop acknowledging Jesus for who He is. And see, that's the challenge for us as Christians is to integrate all of our life, every single day of our life, under the, under the authority and headship of Jesus. Where we work, where we go to school, how we raise our kids, how we love our spouses, how we love our neighbors. It's all under that umbrella of Jesus' lordship and authority in our life. And how easy it is for us to, to carve out certain aspects of our life and say, this is for God, but this is for me. I don't want you, I don't, uh, sometimes I do wonder why there are points in our modern translations where the translators decide not to use a modern word. How many of you have ever used the word adjure? Husbands, have you ever looked at your wives and said, I adjure you to get that laundry done. I adjure you to make sure that food is on my table when I get home. No, you've not, we don't adjure each other. You're not an adjuring type. You know what the word adjure means? It means to command. So what, is this, what are these evil spirits doing? They're, they're commanding Jesus? They're commanding the Son of God? They're commanding the, the, the sovereign, the creator, the Messiah, God himself? You don't command him. I think it's an outrageous act of disrespect. It's not worship. Before you do anything to me, I want to tell you what I would like you to do. That's what the demon was asking Jesus. Do this for me. It's outrageous. And so here's what we need to remember. Evil is, evil is absolutely unrestrainable by external means. Evil is always destructive and evil is always against God. The goal of evil is to defeat everything that is righteous. Now we get to the glorious part. Verse 8. Verse 8 in your Bibles. For he was saying to him, and that's Jesus, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. 
Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. You know, I'm, I'm glad that Jesus, well, maybe Jesus did have a PR expert as one of his disciples. Maybe that's why some of them are disappointed. But Jesus would not really, he wouldn't be a good PR person. I'd be pulling my hair out if I were Jesus' PR person. Jesus, you just don't do that. Jesus, you just don't send the demons into the pigs. It's bad for business. Why did he do that? Again, I'm not going to speculate why. I'm not going to speculate as to why the, some of the commentators were questioning. Did they really run down a steep slope, or was it more like a cliff? Did the, did the demon kill them, or was it the fall off the cliff that killed them? Did they really drown, by the way, pigs swim? There's a whole island of pigs in Bermuda. It's called Pig Island, by the way. And there's wild pigs. And they somehow discovered that when cruise ships would dump all their, their food, they would swim out and get it. And they'd gorge themselves in the food. Pigs can swim, so it's not the fact that these pigs jumped in the water and they couldn't swim and they drowned. That's all the speculation I'm going to give you. But at this moment, it's a contest between evil and the righteous one. At this moment, it's a three-second KO between Jesus and the evil spirits. If this were a Mike Tyson fight, you'd be leaving the arena asking for your money back. Wait a minute, 30 seconds, the guy was down on the ground. I want my money back. But I want you to think for a moment. I think sometimes, and this is just a little encouragement, I think sometimes that Christians leave all the thinking to the pastors. They come in at church, they sit down, and they say, you do all the thinking for us, we just want to listen, and then leave. But here's my desire. My desire, and Pastor Mike mentioned this last week, is that you guys would become self-feeders so that you yourself would open the scriptures. You yourself would wrestle with some of the concepts in the scripture. Ask yourself questions as you read through the text. Be self-feeders. And here's, here's the question. In our battle with evil, and this is something we have to wrestle with, in our battle with evil, the who we are and what he has done for us must always come before here's what to do. And, and we do the opposite, don't we? We wrestle with what to do first. We wrestle with how am I going to get out of this difficult situation rather than first remembering who we are and what Jesus has done for us because that's, that is where our power comes from to deal with the temptations and the struggle and the evil we deal with every day. It's not, let me first sit down and try to, try to, to, to lift, myself up, lift myself up with my bootstraps first. No, let's first remember who I am in Jesus and what he's done for me. And and what has he done for us? He's defeated Satan for us. He, He fulfilled the law where Adam failed for us. When he was tempted like Adam was, he didn't give in. He fulfilled the law. So that we don't have to jump through those hoops now. And he did a lot more than that. Think about what happened to the cross. Jesus took our punishment. And so in the back of your mind, thinking about who you are and what he's done for you, those two pictures, thinking about the temptation of Christ, thinking about the fact that he lived an absolutely perfect life and that he was sinless, he was an acceptable sacrifice to the Father. 
was listening to a guy preach. Uh, we, we often struggle with the wrath of God, don't we? People in the world struggle with the wrath of God. Think about his wrath, and I shared this with a, with a friend earlier this week. God's wrath is an expression of his love. Why do you get angry when your kids do stupid things? Because you know they're capable of better. You know they were created for better. And so when God's people, when we struggle with sin, when we struggle with evil, he gets angry, but it's an expression of his love. The cross was an expression of his love. He dealt with the thing that kept us from him. He dealt with the issue that kept us from him. That's an expression of his love. Getting back to this whole idea of who we are and what he's done, we must first affirm the work of Christ and our identity as his child, his warfare on our behalf, his battle on our behalf, his conquering of evil on our behalf. See, that gives us the courage to stand firm against evil because our, because our strength over evil is found in his cross and in his grace because you don't have the strength yourself. And so what we have in this moment, again, is this demonstration of the power of Christ over evil that, that we have to keep in mind the temptation in the wilderness where he fulfilled, he, he succeeded where Adam failed. And then the cross where he disarmed. In fact, uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 says this, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The cross was a defeat of evil. And so this moment looks back to the temptation of Christ and forward to the cross of Christ, and here's the model for us. Should we fear evil? Yeah, we should fear evil. But we should fear Jesus more. He has power and authority over that. I, I, I think back to Pastor Mike's words last week when he said, Jesus himself said, don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill both body and soul by throwing into hell. And that's who we need to fear. Because of our awe of his power and our awe of his righteousness, our celebration of his sacrifice, we can stand against evil with hope and courage. You will not let evil do its, he will not let evil do its nasty work because we are his child and his, he is our conquering king. I want to mention a few things uh, that I think are important for us to remember. First of all, these evil spirits are actually coming to Christ and asking for what? Permission, aren't they? They, they are submitting themselves to him because they know who he is. Jesus is sovereign over everything, even this evil. And hear this, because his promises can only be guaranteed in the situations over which he rules, how are you, how are you able to, to, to fulfill your promises? Can you make promises that are outside of your control? You can't, can you? You can't make a promise to your wife, you can't make a promise to your husband, you can't make a promise to your children that you're powerless to fulfill. Well, where, where did, what arena do Jesus' promises exist in? He's, his power over everything. See, you and I are only able to fulfill those promises that we have control over. And his promises are the same. He is able only to fill those promises in which he has control over. And what does he have control over? 
everything. Everything. So is, is God a promise keeper? Can he keep all of his promises? Why? Because there's nothing with which Jesus doesn't have control over. And yet that's the very place that we struggle and doubt, isn't it? We doubt that he's not going to fulfill his promises. As if he's anemic and incapable of fulfilling them. But he is. See, if he doesn't rule at all, then there are places that we don't have hope. If he doesn't rule at all, there are places we don't have hope. And there are no places that we shouldn't have hope because he rules it all. And the second thing that you see again what evil does, evil creates chaos and destruction and death, and that's what you see as these 2,000 pigs commit swine suicide. There's a restaurant in Butler that has a, has a sandwich on their menu called Soaked Swine. I'm wondering if that's where they got the name for that sandwich. Notice uh, what happens next. The herdsmen flee. They run away. I'm sure they were uh, terrified by the expression of Jesus' power here. Can you imagine the conversation they had when they went back to the town? The, the pigs are dead. They're, they're floating. They're floating out in the water. Well, what happened to them? Well, they all drowned. Well, how'd that happen? Well, this dude, Jesus, he, he cast all these unclean spirits out of this man, and they just happened to get in the pigs, and they, they, they drowned. Now, if you were their boss, what would be your response? <laughs> You're fired. That's probably what they were saying, but, but wouldn't you want to go out and see this? I'd want to go out and see what's going on here. I'd want to see it with my own eyes, and so these people run out. I want to add a fourth observation to your maps as we look at an, at, as an evil that is so powerful in this passage. Evil cannot be restrained by external force. It's always destructive. Evil is against God. And here's the fourth thing. Evil will rob you of your humanity. Chris's story about uh, that Muslim man who was just enraged by the fact that his wife, the evil within him robbed him of his humanity. He set his wife on fire. It reminds me of about a month and a half ago or two months ago, the BC3 student, actually my son had an opportunity to sit in a class with him at BC3, who... who suspected that his girlfriend was cheating on him, so he shot her in the head three times and then took her out to a cow pasture and lit her on fire. We, we, evil causes us to lose our humanity. Or about seven or eight years ago, a father was convicted of murder because his two-year-old son made him so angry he poured Drano on him. It, evil causes us to lose our humanity. And that's what evil caused this man to do. Remember, he was naked in the tombs, living in the tombs, scraping his body with rocks and with, with shards of stuff that he would find because he was so tormented. But that's not the way he stayed because of the power of the gospel. Evil does rob us of our humanity. Evil destroys all of the restraints that we have. And in destroying those restraints, it moves all those natural stop mechanisms and those natural tendencies of love and goodness. Genesis chapter 6 says that every thought and intention of the man's heart is evil all the time. And now you see this man because he had encountered the rescuing power of grace and Jesus restored him to his right mind. Can you imagine, I'm running out to see these pigs floating in the water and then I see this man who for years lived in these tombs clothed and in his right mind. That's the power of the gospel, isn't it? That's the power of the gospel that can change us from the inside out, not the outside in. 
And that's what we always try to do as we try to control behavior. Well, certainly as this story ends, the people want Jesus to leave. There's one person who doesn't want to leave, Jesus to leave. There's one person that wants to go with Jesus. Jesus, it's a mystery to me. He, he, he uh, agrees with the townspeople. He eventually leaves, but he tells this man whom he healed, no, don't come with me. I don't want you to come with me. But what did you tell him to do? He told him to go home. He told him to go home and tell his story. That's the essence of evangelism. That's the essence of bearing witness. That's the essence of telling our story, what Jesus has done for us. And that's all that God asks us to do. That's all he asks us to do. If your life's been changed, tell somebody about it. That's our application this morning. Says, tell your story. Go everywhere and tell the story of what Jesus has done for you. And I recognize it's scary, so don't go alone. Go with other people. Join us on Wednesday when we go on our prayer walk and we have an opportunity to pray with people and, and perchance have an opportunity to tell our story. Uh, maybe if you join us at the concert on August 11th, you'll have an opportunity to tell your story. How about telling your neighbors your story? How about taking them out for a cup of coffee or a Coke and, and asking them their story? Ask them their, people want to tell you their story, don't they? And then say, thanks for telling me your story. Can I tell you my story? And tell them what Jesus has done for you. That's what, that's what he calls us to do. He doesn't call us to save anybody. He calls us to tell our story. That's really the, the, simple, uh, the simple application, I think, this morning. 